Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhurasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhurasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato Samma Sambhurasa. This is from the Dhammapada, Chapter 2. Vigilance. Be vigilant and go beyond death. If you lack vigilance, you cannot escape death. Those who strive earnestly will go beyond death. Those who do not can never come to life. The wise understand this and rejoice in the wisdom of the noble ones. Meditating earnestly and striving for nirvana, they attain the highest joy and freedom. If you meditate earnestly, pure in mind and kind in deeds, leading a disciplined life in harmony with the Dharma, you will grow in glory. If you meditate earnestly, through spiritual discipline, you can make an island for yourself that no flood can overcome. The immature lose their vigilance, but the wise guard it as their greatest treasure. Do not fall into ways of sloth and lust. Those who meditate earnestly attain the highest happiness. Overcoming sloth through earnestness, the wise climb beyond suffering to the peak of wisdom. They look upon the suffering multitude as one from a mountaintop looks on the plains below. Earnest among those who are indolent. Awake among those who slumber. The wise advance like a racehorse, leaving others behind. It was through earnest effort that Indra became lord of the gods. The earnest are always respected. The indolent, never. The earnest spiritual aspirant, fearing sloth, advances like a fire, burning all fetters. Such seekers will never fall back. They are nearing nirvana. So here we are on middle day. I thought this was a very appropriate reading for this middle day of session. Ethnarch S. Warren, who wrote this translation and um, provides a wonderful introduction that's very worth reading, and many of you have already read this. He says, Dhammapada means something like the path of dharma, of truth, of righteousness, of the central law that all of life is one. The Buddha did not have, leave a static structure of belief that we can affirm and be done with. His teaching is an ongoing path, a way of perfection, which anyone can follow to the highest good. The Dhammapada is a map for this journey. 
We can start wherever we are. But as on any road, the scenery, our values, our aspirations, our understanding of life around us changes as we make progress. So here the seasons are making progress. The trees are wearing their beautiful fall colors. And this morning, though the air felt as though it were a tailor's sample cut from a bolt of winter, that chill. And then today, this afternoon, summer breeze through the autumn leaves. Session is really synonymous with vigilance. How many of us are here for the first session? I remember my first session, and of course they read the session cautions. Session is a unique practice opportunity. Its environment is our personal responsibility and we must care for it. Be respectful of this community by embodying stillness and silence. And on and on this list, what's the board I'm not supposed to step on? What, what, how many of us have kept our seats in the Zendo neat and orderly? When you come back in after Kinhin, are all the seats, all the cushions clean, neat? The only thing I remembered about the session cautions the first time was that uh, they used to say, uh, if you have a question, ask the Jisha, either myself, whoever it was, or the assistant across from me. Now they say, if you have a serious question. <laughs> <laughs> that first session, uh, after the first night, I remember the fear wasn't about having to sit long hours. It was being silent for seven days. But I remembered, oh, I can ask the Jisha questions. <laughs> so the Jisha was closing the altar night, first night. And he's standing there, and I walk up, Tenrai. What's in that big black box on the altar in the Zendo? <laughs> a statue. And then he pours the water and he runs off and I run after him. He comes in here and I'm like, Tenrai, why are there three balls on this altar? He was very vigilant. He was doing his task of closing the altars. So I'm running around asking him these questions. We're in the meeting room, finally, and I'm like, so that little Buddha up there, he's not, he's not the Buddha. Is he like a deity or a wrathful guy? And, he, and <laughs> Tenrai goes, go sit. And that go sit was what the Dhammapada is saying, sit. In the Zendo, we sit, we're still, we're meditating. It takes vigilance. And vigilance is sort of a neutral word. It can be, it's not good or bad, it's the intention that we put, put behind it. We can be very vigilant and cause harm. I remember as a young kid, I come from a very large family. I have four sisters, and one of my sisters, um, we'll call her Kathy. Her name is not Kathy, but for her anonymity, I will say Kathy. She wasn't a Zen practitioner, but she had this vigilance about what she would call pests, meaning insects, mice. She could be watching TV, taking a bath, cooking a meal, if there was something that she saw that 
in her mind, pest, she would be like, kill it, kill it. <laughs> and I'd say, Terry, there's a spider in the bathtub, <gasps> kill it. She'd run and she'd get a hairbrush and you hear ding, ding, ding on the tub. Terry, there's a mouse in the kitchen, <gasps> kill it. She'd take the broom, whack, whack, whack. I always wondered if I say, Terry, there's a Girl Scout at the front door. Does she have peanut butter cookies? No, <gasps> kill it. <laughs> this killing it, this pest thing that we determine is a pest, doesn't deserve life. Some things escape ladybugs, butterflies, chipmunks, and later bees, because she realized, oh, if I like honey, I better not kill the bees. And sometimes I would say, Terry, there's a mosquito on your back. <gasps> kill it. And I'd take my shoe off, and I'd whack her in the back. <laughs> and there was hardly ever an actual mosquito there. But I thought, oh, this is, this is a great opportunity to hit my sister and not get in trouble. And that was like the little, that little ego looking for power, that um, separate entity that uh, does not exist, as the Dhammapada tells us, uh, or as the Diamond Sutra tells us. But this little um, self is always looking for validation. And I think for my sister Kathy, not her real name, this was her, her effort for validation. But this vigilance, I wonder, you know, did this really take her nearer to nirvana? I don't think so. Um, nirvana, uh, S. Warren uses nirvana, the Sanskrit term, because it's um, in common usage, like dharma. But uh, it would have been nibbana. Um, and there's this anthology called The Island, an anthology of Buddhist teachings on Nibbana. It's very, very uh, worth reading. And in this, uh, Thanissaro Bhikkhu, Bhikkhu says, Nibbana, which literally means the extinguishing of a fire, derives from the way the physics of fire was viewed at the time of the Buddha. As fire burned, it was seen as clinging to its fuel in a state of entrapment and agitation. When it went out, it let go of its fuel, growing calm and free. Thus, when the Indians of his time saw a fire going out, they did not feel they were watching extinction. Rather, they were seeing a metaphorical lesson in how freedom could be attained by letting go. This ever letting go practice of Zen, this cooling of the f fuel and the agitation. Being a resident here is a very uh, priceless opportunity to, to look at that arising of agitation, at the smallest things. And Jisha is a very hard role, as we know. Um, whether we've been a Jisha or not, you can see a tremendous amount of work. All the officers have a tremendous amount of work. Um, the Jisha being because you can ask the Jisha questions during <laughs> session, it's, it's got its unique flavor of difficulty. Um, and one time I, I remember this, uh, these fires in me raising up. Um, it was a few years ago. It wasn't during session. It was uh, during open space. Um, I, had come to, quote, help for healing and wellness. And oftentimes, people that come and help, it's very uh, appreciated, but it's not always helpful, especially if you come with a lot of these little 
oh, this should be this way, you know? Why don't we do this? And he's like, uh, okay, okay. Um, and I came, and I, came, I arrived on the day off, so they were, uh, they just had Oban, the residence. It was, uh, there's always a lot of people, a lot of work in the summertime. And they had a rest day. And of course, I arrive, and I go to work, because it wasn't a rest day for me. And I saw this, someone brought in this shower curtain that, from Jarakawan, and it was covered with mold. And it was just overlooked, um, as some things get overlooked, because there's a lot of cleaning and preparation to do, especially when you have, have an old house like Jarakawan. And I saw this, and there was just a moldy shower curtain. But something in me, it was like my sister, Kathy, not her real name, <laughs> came, came through me, and I was like, oh, this mold. And it's like, who's the Jisha? And the Jisha was Sosan. <laughs> Do you remember this, Sosan? That shower curtain? And so I just storm up to the residence floor, and I bang on Sosan's door. Who is it? It's Ryoju. What do you need, Ryoju? <laughs> I said, open the door. <laughs> and I just, and he was just woken up from a nap, and, and I'm like, look at this. <laughs> and all this anger uh, directed at him it had nothing to do with him, just because he was the Jisha. He's not responsible for every piece of mold <laughs> in the building. That's, you know, that's a lot of responsibility. <laughs> But I just, and as I was doing all this, I knew, oh, this is ridiculous. I'm, this is not the Buddha way. You know? And my vigilance was gone. But Sosan, even though he had just woken up from a nap and there's this crazy old monk, kind of like, um, I don't know, mommy dearest, like, no more moldy shower curtains. And Sosan just says, would you like me to wash that for you, Ryoju? And I was like, no, I'll do it myself. You can continue your nap. And I stormed down these stairs, and then the courtyard stairs, and I'm storming. And as I'm storming, I'm like, what is wrong with you? And I'm storming down the stairs and going to go to the basement around near where the Dokusan is, Dokusan room is. And as I get to that point where you either go left to go downstairs to the laundry room or go right to the office and then maybe back upstairs, there was this moment I was like, this is a really important moment. What might I do next is going to create a lot of karma one way or the other. Unfortunately, I went around to the right and I knocked on the door and I said, Sosan, I'm so sorry. And I didn't have a, but, you know, you should have washed the shower curtain. It was, I was truly sorry and I would not have felt that true sorriness if it wasn't for Sosan's vigilance. So thank you for that, Sosan. And his vigilance was just in support of his vow. You know, we take these, some of us take uh, monastic vows, others jukai vows, others we just vow to come and sit, do session, and abide by the precepts while we're here. And this vow is really essential. And it is a uh, vigilance is the heartbeat of this vow. Joshua Pat Phelan Sensei, um, in speaking of vow, put it very beautifully. And she said that the nature of a vow is vast, beyond words. We continually define and redefine our vow as we renew our intention to fulfill it. If we have a well-defined task with a beginning, a middle, and an end, like mowing a lawn, you can estimate or measure the time and effort needed to complete that task. But a vow, like the bodhisattva vow, is immeasurable. The intention we arouse, the effort we cultivate when we call forth this vow, extends us beyond the limitations of this life. 
I witnessed this vow manifesting uh, when Jodo and Zuiho ordained. I had um, never been to a, a Buddhist ordination and I got to know and care a great deal about them. I had done some sessions here. I spent time with them doing Samu and uh, healing and wellness and Oban and they were my they're my, they're my friends and I and they were and at the time they were Myodo and Semu were the names. Jodo was Semu, Zuiho was Myodo, and so I thought, oh, I'm going to come and uh, come a few days early and help the Sangha prepare for the ordination. And so I come up and um, didn't know what to expect. And as I arrived, the Jisha greeted me and told me where my room was and, and said, oh, and don't go in to the Genkan because Myodo and Seimu are doing Niwazume, which is the two days of uh, the postulants uh, prostrate on the temple steps, begging entry into the monastic order. And I thought, wow, that's, that's kind of cool. And he said, but don't go peek in there. You can't disturb them, and uh, we have to ignore them. You won't, if you won't see them anywhere else, but if for some reason you see them you know, going to the bathroom or something, you just ignore them. It's this ceremonial um, uh, banishing them from uh, entering the monastic order. And what they do, how, how many of us have done Niwazume, coming up the mountain. And uh, so what they do is they, when you're dropped off down the mountain in uh, your shinigi, you have, the, you have your, your robes and everything are made and waiting, um, and you have your shinigi on, which is this sort of uh, Victoria's Secret kind of uh, <laughs> robe that we have. Very pretty, very beautiful. And uh, you're dropped off like a ways away from the gatehouse and you walk up in your robe in the in sandals and tabi and you bang on the front door of the monastery which is closed wanting to come in nobody answers no answer crack the door open Nobody there. And then you just go like that for two days. If you had any doubts about whether you wanted to be a monk during those two days, those doubts made themselves known. I remember Jodo. Uh, after the ordination, I asked her, how was that, you know, spending two days? She was like, oh, it was wonderful. <laughs> I felt like I was a ghost. I could hear everything around the monastery, all the workings of the animals and people cooking. And, oh, I loved it. And then I asked Suiho, how was it, Suiho? I said, oh, I just, I was weeping. I was like, my parents. It's paid for college. <laughs> and I'm laying, sitting here. I could just get up. I could just leave. I don't have to do this. So depending on where we're, we are, in here and in here, it can be a very different experience. Um, but the magnitude of this vow, this vastness, is made evident during this time. And so um, I was instructed not to peek in, but I did manage to go around to the, the big bancho bell and look down. And I could just sort of see their little feet sticking out and, you know, just, and I peeked in there through the, through the trees. And then the Jisha uh, announced after the, uh, the sit, the final sit of that first day I, I arrived there, and she said, and the Jisha said, 
will be uh, sitting. Wake up was at I think in those days it was four thirty, even on the like a day you didn't have choka. So it's like at four thirty there'll be uh, uh, is the shinrei bell, but the sangha will be sitting from th- uh, three o'clock in the morning or three fifteen in the morning um, in support of the two potential monks that were out at the Genkan. And I was like, 3.15 in the morning? And I was like, no, I'm going to do it. This is, these are my friends. I'm going to go in and um, support them. Um, so I was thinking that they'd be sitting in the zendo. Um, uh, but what they were doing is they were sitting in the foyer of the zendo. But it was 3.15 in the morning. Um, and I, I get up, and I, of course, was a little late, because, you know, it's 3.15 in the morning. And all the lights were, you know, it was like evening monastery lighting, just a few uh, night lights. The Dharma Hall light was very, very dim, and the little light in the foyer was on. So when you're coming in, you know, when you're coming into a dark room, and this had some light, and then you're going in there, um, took a while for the eyes to adjust. But what I saw, um, what was happening was there was maybe like 12 or 13 people sitting in that dark room, but because of the small night light, it cast a shadow of people on this wall, which was reflected in the window and the glass of the picture. And as I was walking into this, what I thought was an empty foyer, I saw not just these 12 or 13 people sitting, I saw the reflection of every monk that ever ordained on the walls, in the glass. And I was just filled with gratitude for this this vow that they were taking. And I turned to bow to the Buddha, and then I saw the table with their robes wrapped in white paper, the red satin ribbon around it, waiting for them. And it was one of those moments that is imprinted on my heart. And so I didn't want to disturb the people sitting, so I went back to my room and I wrote these two verses for uh, Jodo, Semu, and Zwiho, Miodo. In the falling blossoms, apples. On the temple step, Semu surrenders her petals. At the feet of the Buddha, Miodo's robes wait for their bones. this vigilance that we are called to bring to our practice, it is essential. There's a poem by Otagaki Rengetsu. Uh, She was a nun. Um, She lived 1791 to 18. 75, very beautiful poetry, and I wanted to offer this one. Yesterday, I shattered the ice to draw water. No matter. This morning, frozen just as solid.
This is from the Sutta Nipata. And uh, in the Sutta, a Brahmin student named Kappa is, Kappa, K-A-P-P-A, is speaking. He says, Sir, to the Buddha, there are people stuck midstream in the terror and the fear of the rush of the river of being, and death and decay overwhelm them. For their sakes, sir, tell me where to find an island. Tell me where there is solid ground beyond the reach of all this pain. Kappa, said the Buddha, for the sake of those people stuck in the middle of the river of being, overwhelmed by death and decay, I will tell you where to find solid ground. There is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of nothingness, a place of non-possession and of non-attachment. It is the total end of death and decay. And this is why I call it Nibbana, the extinguished, the cool. There are people who, in mindfulness, have realized this and completely cooled, and are completely cooled here and now. They do not become slaves working for Mara, for death. They cannot fall into his power. Ajahn Sumedho, in commenting on this verse, said, In English, nothingness can sound like annihilation, like nihilism. But you can also emphasize the thingness so that it becomes no thingness. So Nibbana is not a thing that you can find. It is a place of no thingness a place of non-possession, a place of non-attachment. It is a place, as Ajahn Chah said, where the experience, where you experience the reality of non-grasping. I opened this uh, Dharma talk with chanting Namo Tassa Bhagavato in honor of the Buddha, of course, but also of uh, the School of the Elders, which um, before, even though I had come here 25 years ago, I didn't begin practicing here until maybe sometime in like 2005, 2006. Um, before that, I, I took vows in the Tibetan tradition, in the Kagyu tradition as a lay practitioner. And then for many years was, uh, would attend monastic retreat at Insight Meditation Society every year, which uh, they have the uh, Theravadan teachers, some, some Burmese, some Thai forest tradition, some from Sri Lanka. And I would, uh, first I would attend as a participant and then um, was asked to be kapiya, which is the attendant, kind of like the inji to, to uh, Roshi. Um, and I was so moved by their vigilance, that th this, these um, true... Uh, Theravadan monks who just give up everything and their vigilance is so inspiring. And I, I remember serving them. I, I really felt like I was serving my great, 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 great grandparents each time when I was serving uh, a monk or a nun. In, the, in their simple 
sort of saffron robes. Our, our robes are a little more elaborate. We have this that represents that saffron robe, which really were originally just robes from dead prisoners that the Buddha put on after he took off his royal garb and founded this order of monks. So I just wanted to honor them and thank them, uh, the school of the elders. This is a poem by Mary Oliver. The Buddha's last instruction. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the East begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet and green. An old man, he lay down between two solid trees and he might have said anything knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward. It thickens and settles over the fields. Around him, the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs, disattached in the, blo in the blue air, I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt, he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million wild flowers on fire. Clearly, I'm not needed. Yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly, Beneath the branches, he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. Ajahn Amaro, uh, one of the monks uh, I served, um, one retreat, has said, when we find that quality of total acceptance and absolute non-aversion, where there's kindness and compassion, then there's a tremendous quality of ease and release, a real non-discrimination at last. For what kind of wisdom are we developing if it packs up and departs as soon as the going gets rough? As soon as the weather gets too hot, the wrong person is put in charge, or the body gets sick and uncomfortable. We all have these little triggers of aversion. For me, it's people on cell phones in public places, especially in the subway. I've never owned a cell phone. So I get particularly annoyed when going up the stairs and someone stops and they're checking their email and you're trying to get to your destination. And one time I was coming back, uh, returning home from Shoboji, New York Zendo in the city, our city temple. And so I just, I just come from a nice sitting and uh, it was an intro to Zen night and had wonderful community with newcomers and the residents the residents there and so I was feeling you know kind of good but I still when I was walking up the stairs there was this woman head down sort of stationary on the stairs and and I thought oh I'm not going to let my aversion <laughs> kick in and so I'm walking by and Still, as I'm walking by, I couldn't help but like 
give her a nasty look as I turned. <laughs> and as I looked, I saw she wasn't on her cell phone. She was helping this maybe a three-year-old child walk up the stairs on her own. So she was just there as, you know, in case she faltered. And as soon as I saw this little girl and her mother, this tenderness welled up in me. That uh, annoyance, that anger, just was gone. And I thought, where did this tenderness come from? And it, I realized it was always there. I just, this tenderness is, is always right there, but we cover it up with all this bullshit. And as this tenderness leapt up, I thought of um, Pema Chodron, who uh, she always um, seems to be teaching about that shenpa, that hook, those things, um, and, and, and really recommending that we value that as a priceless opportunity to um, come to some awakening, to come to some understanding of the tenderness that's already there. And she, um, this tenderness is bodhicitta, and she describes bodhicitta this way. Chitta means mind and also heart or attitude. Bodhi, of course, means awake, enlightened, or completely open. Sometimes the completely opened heart and mind of bodhicitta is called the soft spot, a place as vulnerable and tender as an open wound. It is equated in part with our ability to love. Even the cruelest people have this soft spot. Even the most vicious animals love their offspring. As Jogyam Trumpa Rinpoche put it, everybody loves something, even if it's just tortillas. There's a, one of my f favorite poets is Naomi Shahib Nye. And she wrote a poem called Kindness, which um, I think maybe many of you know. And I never knew the story behind this poem, but once I heard her speak uh, about it, and she was sharing how this poem, she was saying, I did not write it. It wrote itself. It just came t through me. And um, I'd like to read the poem, but I'd like to give you the background story of how the poem came into being. Uh, she was on her honeymoon with her husband in um, Colombia. And I don't know when this was, but it was pre-cell phone era. You know, it was um, a while ago. And uh, I guess they were a young married couple, and they had saved up all this money, and they were going to go uh, to South America and hike all around and go to Machu Picchu and um, spend a lot of time walking around South America. And all of their friends were like, don't do that. It's dangerous. You're going to, you have all this money, and, and, you know, what if something happens, you know? Uh, what will happen, you know, it's dangerous. And they're like, no, 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 we're going to do this. And so they were in Colombia, and they were on a bus ride, riding along, and uh, robbers stopped the bus. And they wound up killing uh, one of the guides on the bus and taking everyone's valuables. And so there were these people stranded without 
any, any money. Um, and the poet and her husband uh, did not speak the language. Um, so they were, it was this, this horrible situation. And they, they decided, the husband said, oh, I'm going to go and hitchhike to the next biggish town and try to, you know, contact the bank and see if I can, you know, get money from the traveler's checks that were stolen. And, um, and here they were, this foreign place, and she was left there. Uh, and all she had was her little notebook in her back pocket and a pencil. And she's just sitting sort of on the side of the road, and I guess there was maybe a small town around somewhere. And a man came up to her um, and in broken English said, you know, I, I know that you are in tremendous distress and I, there's nothing I can do. I just wanted to tell you, I'm so sorry. And this man's kindness she sat down, and this poem just came to her. She just wrote it out on this one notebook, the only thing she had. Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you can ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. There is a meditation practice called metta, loving kindness. It's something that the, uh, is done a lot in um, the Theravadan tradition. Uh, I wanted to read something from, this is in the words of the Buddha, Anthology of Discourses from the Pali Canon, translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi. This is a chapter on meditation, subtitled, The Development of Loving-Kindness. 
Monks, whatever grounds there are for making merit productive of a future birth, all these do not equal a sixteenth part of the liberation of the mind by loving kindness. The liberation of the mind by loving kindness surpasses them and shines forth bright and brilliant. Just as the radiance of all the stars does not equal a sixteenth part of the moon's radiance, but the moon's radiance surpasses them and shines forth bright and brilliant. Even so, whatever grounds there are for making merit productive of a future birth, all these do not equal a sixteenth part of the liberation of mind by loving kindness. The liberation of mind by loving kindness surpasses them and shines forth bright and brilliant. Just as in the last month of the rainy season, in autumn, when the sky is clear and free of clouds, the sun, on ascending, dispels the darkness of space and shines forth bright and brilliant. Even so, whatever grounds there are for making merit productive of a future birth, all these do not equal a sixteenth part of the liberation of mind by loving kindness. The liberation of mind by loving kindness surpasses them and shines forth bright and brilliant. And just as in the night, at the moment of dawn, the morning star shines forth bright and brilliant, even so, Whatever grounds there are for making merit productive of a future birth, all these do not equal a sixteenth part of the liberation of mind by loving kindness. The liberation of mind by loving kindness surpasses them and shines forth bright and brilliant. I'd like, if I may, to just do a very short metta meditation. So if you just sit comfortably where you are. And during this, we can close our eyes. Pema Chodron writes, to move from aggression to unconditional loving kindness can seem like a daunting task, but we start with what's familiar. The instruction for cultivating limitless maitri or loving kindness is to first find the tenderness that we already have. We touch in with our gratitude, our appreciation, our current ability to feel goodwill in a very non-theoretical way, we contact the soft spot of bodhicitta. Whether we find it in the tenderness of feeling love or the vulnerability of feeling lonely is immaterial. If we look for that soft, unguarded place, we can always find it. So closing our eyes, Breathing easily, letting the thoughts go, clearing the mind. And as we sit here, invite you to bring the focus to the body. The 
organs of the body. The heart. The lungs. The eyes. Bring the awareness to the skin, all the systems of the body, bringing awareness and loving kindness to the muscles and the bones. And silently to yourself, say to yourself, may I be happy. May I be healthy. May I be safe. May I be free from pain. May I be filled with loving kindness. Repeating the phrases silently. You may use these phrases or others. Just offering loving kindness to yourself. Now thinking of someone for whom you spontaneously feel unequivocal goodwill and tenderness. It could be a parent or a child, a spouse, a pet. friend. Repeating again the phrases, may I be happy, may you be happy, may you be free from suffering, may you be healthy, may you be safe. May you be filled with loving kindness. Then picture someone that you know, but someone slightly more distant, 
person that you may see every day, but someone that you sort of feel neutral about. And repeating the same phrases, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be free from suffering. May you be safe. May you feel loving kindness. choosing someone that you have a little difficulty with. Not an arch enemy or someone that causes anger or hatred, but someone that sometimes rubs you the wrong way. Picture this person in front of you. And with a sincere heart, offer loving kindness to this person. May you be happy, healthy, free from pain. May you be safe. May you feel loving kindness. And letting that loving kindness grow big enough to include yourself, your loved one, your neutral person, your difficult person. Letting that loving kindness grow big enough to include all the beings Say to yourself, may we be happy, may we be healthy, may we be safe, free from pain, may we feel loving kindness, and extending that loving kindness to all the animals on the mountain all the insects, the birds, the fishes, all the plants of the mountain. And then extending loving kindness toward all beings throughout the universe. limitless loving-kindness extending out from your heart. And dropping the words, dropping the wishes, coming back to the non-conceptual simplicity of just sitting here, breathing.
opening your eyes. Coming back into the room. On the Beach at Night Alone by Walt Whitman. On the beach at night alone, as the old mother sways her to and fro, singing her husky song, as I watch the bright stars shining, I think a thought of the cleft of the universe and of the future. The vast similitude interlocks all, all spheres, grown, ungrown, small, large, suns, moons, planets, all distances of place, however wide, all distances of time, all inanimate forms, all souls, all living beings, though they be ever so different or in different worlds, all gaseous, watery, vegetable, mineral processes, the fishes, the brutes, all nations, colors, barbarisms, civilizations, languages, all identities that have existed or may exist on this globe or any globe, all lives and deaths, all of the past, present, future. This vast similitude spans them and always has spanned and shall forever span them and completely hold and enclose them. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.